Hello, my name is Kojabwa, host of the Change Africa podcast. If you're new here, don't forget to subscribe and review our show on Apple Podcasts. You can also support us by being one of our amazing patrons for exclusive content and perks in the link in the description. Welcome, Charles, to the Change Africa podcast. This is where we meet the change makers across the continent who we believe are leading transformation. So um, we'd like the viewers to learn a little more about you, what you do, and then just zooming into the conversation. Thanks, Isaac. Thanks for having me on this uh, podcast. Um, so who am I? My name is Charles Olumui Wamuela. I am a media and communication professional. I've done media work and comms work all my life. Uh, I've benefited from my work uh, around Africa. And I, I believe that my personal and professional journey has been shaped and defined by my experiences and my very early exposure to the African media and business landscape. So um, I've always believed that um, as uh, a communication professional, uh, I was and I train myself, I equip myself to engage uh, colleagues, not just within my country of birth, but also across uh, the region and across the continent. So, and I found it very useful um, and very invaluable to, you know, work and actually deliberately go after work that gives me that exposure. So that's, that's um, my life. I've, I've, I've learned a lot um, as a lifelong student of global cultures. Um, I've always been involved in uh, comms work for companies, for public sector agencies, um, even civil uh, civic society firms, um, and all of that working across Africa, uh, trying to create value to value, connecting people to opportunities. Uh, in a lot of spaces, I've also acted as an advisory in an advisory capacity to companies and uh, institutions. So that's. Um, my personal and professional life uh, in, a, in a nutshell, constantly learning. Before we started this conversation, we were talking about Lagos. You know, I think that economically in Africa, we could say Lagos is the epicenter of the emerging African economy and the potential that it has to take over. And, you know, so according to some analysts, replicate the model of China based on the population of the African continent, and Lagos being one of the most populated cities in it. What do you think is the state of Lagos right now and its role in that eventual future of Africa being the global um, economy that it has the potential to be? Thank you. I think Lagos is, um, like you know, one of the mega cities in the world. Um, it's reputed to be, uh, if Lagos was uh, seen as a country, it might be the I think the sixth or fifth largest economy in Africa. Uh, and that happens by default of its uh, population size, by default of its um, volume and value of economic activities that uh, happens in Lagos. So Lagos is not just the gateway to Nigeria. It's also, in many respects, the gateway to uh, West Africa. Um, countries that are landlocked around West Africa uh, make use of Lagos uh, airports and seaports to, to get in their produce and goods and also to get them out uh, in terms of exportation. Now, Lagos is not unique uh, in this. Uh, Accra, uh, Abidjan, Dakar, 
and even to some extent, Banjul and Gambia are also cities that are growing, uh, even Douala and Cameroon next door. Uh, so they all have similar urban challenges. Uh, there's a rural urban drift, there's uh, a competition for resources, there's a competition for jobs, and the governments and the public sector and the policymakers are constantly on the edge to provide services to this uh, expanding population. And Lagos is just like any other city in the world which uh, needs to satisfy these yearnings. Now, the interesting part of this dynamic is that a lot of the population that we're talking about are young people, uh, people under the age of 30, 40s, uh, which is what these figures show about the population index in Africa. So that challenge is there, but that challenge will continue, uh, you know, in the future in terms of the need for services, the demand for services, and the need to also, you know, meet that demand with the supply uh, from the public sector, private sector, and civil society uh, side of things. So yes, Lagos is um, doing well. Things are calm right now, uh, but um, like every other city, is constantly bubbling. So let's take a retrospective look at, you know, the past few months. The NSAS uprising is one of the crucial social uprisings of the year in, um, in the world. But it's interesting that, I mean, with all the difficulties that we've had in the world this year, also came a resonance of youthful voices that are demanding change. We saw that in George Floyd's um matter in the US and in Mexico in Brazil and Lagos, I guess in the conclusion of the year, we have other countries like Cameroon, Uganda, all having the prices. Why do you think that now is the time that the youth have galvanized their efforts into fighting the powers of government to demand better services than they have been? And I understand that the whole colossus of NSARS um, has its own journey from, I think, the 90s and even um, very recently, 2017. But why now uh, are the youth wanting a dramatic end to um, the forces that be that they think that are kind of being a hindrance to the progress that they could possibly make? Okay, so there are two questions there. Why now and then the NSARS thing. So let me take the last one. Um, why now? I think it's a natural uh, trend, a natural evolution of societies everywhere. Uh, if, you, if you backtrack a little bit to the beginning of this year and the middle of last year, uh, Hong Kong, for example, has also been engulfed in civil unrest, exactly. mostly driven by mm -hmm. uh, young people in that society. Uh, remember the Arab Spring a couple of years ago in North Africa, also mostly driven by young people. So... Um, come back home to West Africa, why now? It's, it's a natural evolution. Um, as long as we have a population which is predominantly youth-based, uh, um, the youth will the voice of the youth will uh, continue to expand and grow. And, and the young people cannot be ignored anymore. Uh, even if the establishment ignores them, they will speak up. And that's just what's happening. Uh, they're, they're being uh, mainstreamed into the discourse of, of, of the day, and they don't have a voice, they don't have a share in what's uh, of a sea of things. Now, if you talk about the future, this future, uh, the future is the youth, right? So why will the, uh, you have an aging generation of uh, people making laws and policies 
that they will not be there to implement, enforce, or even enjoy. So it just makes sense to 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 have the youth uh, voice involved in in these things. So for me, that's uh, the reason. It's a natural trend. It's a natural evolution. Uh, the Nigerian youth uh, are not any different from youth in, in Ghana or in any other country in Africa or even in the world at large at that matter. Now to, to the other part of your question, NSAS. NSAS is, uh, like you know, um, a, global, a local campaign that became global to some extent uh, because young people decided to speak up against police brutality, right? Now, uh, that's a synonym, as it were, for so many other things in society where young people and society at large uh, do not benefit from the dividends of democracy. And, and essentially, that's what they're saying. Uh, indeed, it's not even young people against the police. It's actually the young people fighting for the rights and the privileges that police uh, personnel should enjoy, the conditions of service, their remuneration, the, the safety, the dignity as professionals, right? It's very important. Uh, so today you talk about the police, but we can also talk about medical personnel. We can also talk about um, our educationists. We can also talk about uh, people who provide public services, uh, firefighters, boss, uh, drivers, anybody who is in the public service delivery space. Um, that's the synonym that NSAS represents. That's, that's the campaign, you know, to, to make governments more responsible and more responsive to the people. I think that I would like to segue the conversation into something that I think is very crucial to the evolution of social uprisings. Now, the state kind of repelled um, what young people put up for, you know, the strikes, the demonstrations and all of that. I, I do not think we all agree that the state perhaps did not manage it as best as it should. And the the campaign ended. What, what should be the chasm between what we seek to, the change we seek in these social uprisings and campaigns and what is possible in the law and how do we make the differentiation between that so that when we as young people are trying to see change, we know the route to take so that we perhaps can get that change in law? Because it seems to me that no matter what we do, if whatever we are seeking does not become law eventually, then perhaps the, the entirety of the movement might have, I guess, been sabotaged to a point. I don't know if you agree with me and what you have to say about that. Okay, so I don't believe that the campaign has ended. I, I think what has happened is that we have ignited uh, the beginning. We're just at the very beginnings of uh, something which, could, which will be very trans transformative for society. Um, today it's Nigeria, tomorrow it could be anywhere else. And yes, the protests um, have been halted on the streets, but the aspirations uh, continue the needs that um, the protest represents, the, the questions being asked um, are yet to be fully answered. So to that extent, I don't think it's, it's ended. Now, the flip side or the logical extension of that is that youths must also learn to be strategic. They must also henceforth continue to engage, 
right, and dialogue, and whatever has to be achieved, or whatever will be achieved, will be achieved uh, uh, through dialogue. Uh, you're not going to get a total wipe off of the current um, political class, yeah, uh, overnight. It's going to be gradual, and and it's going to be earned based on the merits and the respect that young people have for, you know, the rules of engagement and how they're able to, you know, use it to, to their benefit. So it's not, uh, in my view, a dead end yet. It's actually the beginning, the beginning of the very beginning of a long journey. Uh, we have a lot of work to do in Africa. We have a lot of uh, transformation to do in every sector, you know, to, 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 to change our status from the underdeveloped or developing economies that we are called to develop, right? And modern society that uh, we all aspire for. So if you look at it from that angle, there's a lot of work ahead and we're just at the very beginning of the beginning. Um, and it's a necessary beginning, uh, if only to awaken the consciousness of everybody that look, there is a huge section of society and they need to be mainstreamed into the conversation for, for growth and economic development. That's very true. One of the things that came out of the UNSAS movement is grassroots movements and grassroots participation of young Nigerians who were able to mobilize both funds, resources, legal aid, hospital aid, amongst other things. What do you think that that is going to inspire in the Nigerian and African population at, at large? Because you've already established that Lagos and Nigeria, as, as it is, has a direct influence on what happens across the continent. Do you think that that success in the mobilization of resources for people during the movement is going to trickle down to how other movements get to happen in other countries or even how grassroots um, organizations learn to use digital media amongst other things to make sure that their voice and concerns are heard on that massive scale. So it's not just uh, grassroots uh, movement. It's, it's, I wouldn't call it a grassroots movement. It's a youth-based movement. Okay. Uh, and the youths everywhere in the rural areas, urban areas, peri-urban areas, uh, across all social strata of society. So this is one defining dynamic, you know, of that campaign. Uh, it's nothing, uh, it's not based on political class or, or your social class or whatever. It's totally widespread. That's, so that's one thing I think we need to understand. Secondly, uh, we need to also understand and appreciate the role of technology how young people are able to employ technology to affect, you know, to, to raise money, to harmonize and, and basically just uh, advocate, you know, get the voice, get the message out. So the, old, the, the only reason why the world is talking about this was because of the social media uh, exposure, the technology that this had, uh, the technological base rather, that um, was part of all of this. You know, if, if this had happened 20 years ago, uh, it, it might not have had or received that much global exposure and attention. So uh, that's, for me, one thing we should recognize, and that will continue um, to happen because you cannot, you know, stop uh, a wave, that, you know, that has its own current going. They will always find a way, youth will always find a way to get their messages out, even when uh, certain aspects of the state uh, do not like it or they do not find the message palatable. So one of the things I notice on social media is that a lot of people seem to have this worldview that state media 
or even private media in Nigeria um, that are not on these digital platforms, they had a different perspective on the issue that was sent to, I guess, the older population outside. So it seemed that the older population that might not have enjoyed the audience of Twitter or Facebook did not truly understand the dynamic. Or, for example, live feeds on Instagram that were showing even sometimes killings of people. How do we reconcile that? What is the um, the duty of the media in the independence of the voice of the youth in aiding for clarity to the general public and understanding that they have to be um, the people that really tell the truth of issues because it seemed like there were parts of the media that, I guess in a sense, were supporting the government or trying to make room for a certain narrative to be told from that perspective. And as a journalist, I'd like to have your perspective on that. Everybody in the media, every media professional has a duty to report accurately and do what is right, uh, you know. On the flip, on, on, on the back of that is the need for them to be very discerning. Um, they have to be discerning in the information that they publish and the readership too have to be discerning in, you know, just believing everything that they read. They need to be circumspect. Do you understand my take? Yeah, I understand you. I understand you. I understand the circumspection of that. Um, did you think that the government had some kind of influence in the narrative that was put out there, um, especially with efforts that has been taken to, for example, pass a social media bill that in some way might um, harm individual freedoms of people that want to express themselves, which is allowed in every democratic establishment? I think, first of all, I can't speak on behalf of the government, but what I can say is that like every entity, every state, uh, they will you know, have their own position, they will have their own perspectives, and they will get it out. Uh, whether this aligns with what um, the other side, uh, the agitators are saying or want is, is a different matter, you know. So it's not for me to castigate or it's not my role to, to align with um, what government is saying or not saying. Um, they have their communications mechanisms. They have, um, in, and to some extent, in many cases, they also have a bigger picture you know, of, of, of things, and they have to consider all the sides in their responses. And sometimes this may appear to be slow uh, to, to people, uh, but it, it doesn't always mean that government is against the people. Uh, one of the things that we have to also debunk uh, in Africa is that uh, this anti-government mentality of young people. Uh, indeed, the young people of today will become, you know, uh, people will rule tomorrow. They will be in government, they will be in positions of authority, they will be in powerful positions of influence, uh, even in business, right? So they, they also must learn uh, the dynamics of engagement, right? Uh, which is one thing young, young people can learn from the older experienced uh, members of society. So that's very important in my view, to, to not uh, think that, um, everything that comes from the public sector side or from government agencies is wrong. You know, sometimes um, it's also a lack of clarity and a lack of um, collaboration and mix uh, that causes this gulf between, you know, what we want and what government does. 
So the onus is also on young people to to get engaged, get involved, uh, and 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 be more active and more participatory, you know, in governance. When when you have a voice, when you're at the table, when you're present, then you can actually influence how things shape out. So the current median age of youth in Africa is about 19.8. And by 2050, we are expecting about 830 million people in Africa to be young people. And there are other very startling statistics that imply that the future of the continent is going to be the youth. How are we, I mean, the older generation preparing to lay the ground for the young people of today to take the mantle of leadership tomorrow? Okay, so th this is the way I look at it. Young people have energy, young people bring innovation uh, to the table, right? And the so-called older members of society, uh, predominantly the leadership class, appreciate this. Let's, let's not uh, forget that, they appreciate this. And they actually welcome this. The, the combination of the experience, right, uh, that they have and the foresight they have and the uh, and innovation and energy and the partnerships that young people bring to the table, you know, provide a pathway to the future of Africa, right? Uh, like I said, as you, 16 million young Africans today, um, which is around 13.4% of the labor force, right, are currently facing unemployment or underemployment, right? They, they want uh, they also acknowledge that they need to be better trained, they need more education, uh, and they also aspire, many of them, in many cases, 90% of them, you know, aspire to start a business in their own country, right? And, and that, this is true if you look at the demographics in every uh, society uh, across Africa. The, the youth understand where they are, they understand um, what they need. Um, they may not always have the capacity to get it, but uh, they will get it uh, with the opportunity space opening up. They will get it with engagement, right? And basically uh, partnering with those in government to, to seek for pathways, opportunities, space opening. Um, it's not a them and us scenario. The youth are part of the solutioning, right, that we seek. Uh, they are part of the private sector efforts. They're part of the public sector efforts. Um, again, uh, I'm always careful not to have this um, divided perception that the youth on one side of the debate and then you have the establishment on the other side of the debate. No, indeed, a lot of young people now are emerging into leadership roles in government and business, uh, and they also have a duty, you know, to do good and do well and encourage more young people, you know, to, to be leaders. So there's a role for leadership. There's also a time and season, you know, for learning what you should learn, right? Uh, there's always this perception about being an entrepreneur, you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to own your own business, but you must remember that before you can run, you must learn to walk, you must, before you can walk, you must learn to crawl. And even before you can crawl, you must learn to be, uh, to sit down properly, right? And, and that's the entrepreneurial journey. Entrepreneurship uh, and leadership, right, is not a destination, it's a journey. And the youth must realize uh, individually and collectively, uh, regardless of their social class or well-being, that they, they should realize this, where they are and recognize what they need, you know, to move to the next stage. So 
that segues us into education. Um, you are the board chair of yeah. Junior Achievement Africa, and Junior Achievement is into giving skills that the school establishment alternatively has not been able to provide. We are talking about financial literacy, work readiness, and then entrepreneurship. Let's move in into that discussion about the future of jobs and entrepreneurship on the continent. Junior yeah. Achievement this this youth employment in Africa private sector report. And the surveys are very startling. It talks about how there's going to be about 93% of the youth who are going to eventually be in the private sector. And so it means that there's going to be more jobs. How do you think that the private sector in Africa is going to eventually evolve to allow young people to gain jobs? Or is it going to be incumbent on young people to be entrepreneurial themselves, to employ themselves? No, that's that's like a chicken and egg um, situation. The the uh-huh. uh, look at the SME space for example for every big company for every transnational company that you have or a mega corporation there are tens and hundreds of thousands of smaller companies you know uh, acting in that value chain as suppliers as vendors and partners that's where the space that's where the opportunity space is. Uh, young people recognize that opportunity and they will go for it and already they're you know filling the gaps so for me i think um, if you look at the african mentality to uh, the response to the commercial space and the opportunities around them uh, young people are very agile young people understand uh, the demands of the marketplace Uh, if they don't understand it yet they will do what they need to understand it better and that's the entrepreneurship journey i was talking about they will do what they need to do to end to get the skills, the training, the exposures, uh, and also the mentoring required, you know, to grow into uh, those entrepreneurial roles. Um, it's not, um, and, and increasingly you're finding that uh, there are in every country in Africa there are young uh, champions of business who are doing well uh, in every country who are doing well, who are bridging the gap, you know, and we need more of this. Uh, we need more people, we need more young people, but I must stress that whilst we talk about entrepreneurial activity, there is a huge role for learning and knowledge. Um, that's the key to growth. That's the thing we need. You know, young people need to learn, continue to learn and, and need to grow. And that's the only path. To so in the in the report, um, thirty six percent of young people think that training programs, and thirty six percent of young people think that internship. So that's about sixty four percent of young people think that these kind of combination of training programs and internships are what prepare them best for the workplace. Yeah, and only twelve percent of them think that formal education does anything like that. Why is this so? And what is wrong with African education? What is wrong with African education is that both the public sector and the private sector are not investing enough in education. That's that is what is wrong. The other thing you talk about there uh, speaks to formal and informal education. Both are very important. Vocational uh, skills training is critical, um, very important. Uh, not everybody can be... Uh, in what you call the typical 
white collar roles or, or jobs, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Like I always have a saying that, I mean, no disrespect to those who have PhDs, but um, economies are not built by uh, PhD holders. But PhD holders, uh, you know, have a role to play because they help us with the conceptual thinking. They help us to advance the thinking process and the thoughts and the theories that uh, everybody else, you know, advances forward and, and works on. So at every level um, of educational achievement, there is a role for you to play, you know, um, and there is a need for us to appreciate the value that uh, work brings on and dignity and to also, you know, create a, an environment and ecosystem which promotes dignity in labor and, and that dignity should be adequately rewarded. Um, and, and going back to your question about what is wrong with education, uh, part of that uh, dignity issue in development is that um, if you look at the hierarchy of professions, you know, in society, in terms of remuneration, our teachers, our educators are poorly paid, right? But everybody who has become anything has done so on the back of being taught by some teachers, you know, through your journey in primary school, in secondary school, and then in tertiary institutions, you know, you've been taught by a plethora of teachers, right? Um, there's this saying about uh, teachers' reward is in heaven, right? It's a very interesting African saying. Yes. But how, how, how fair can that be? Right, a teacher's yeah. reward is. We expect the doctors to get but, their paychecks, but teachers go to heaven. <laughs> yes, then the lawyers get paid immediately. Uh, management consultants want to get paid immediately. Uh, the person who sells produce to you wants to get paid immediately, right? But the person who gives you the knowledge to produce all these things, you know, has to wait until eternity, as it were. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> and that's assuming they get to heaven. What if they don't get to heaven? <laughs> So, yeah, that's a very, very interesting point. Yeah. So, so, so we need to recalibrate, you know, how we look at um, society, how we look at those that add value to development, right? And, and if you look at the developed economies of the world uh, in Northern Europe, North America, uh, let me let me specifically uh, talk about the Canadian system and the Norwegian, uh, or let me say the Baltic. Um, system in the north of Europe, right? Sweden, Norway, Finland, and uh, there's a fourth country that makes up the... Iceland. I Iceland, yes. Those economies are known for the human development focus, right? And you can look at the educational statistics, the achievements. You can look at the, for example, uh, maternity leave for, for women, right? Um, we have a short period, three months. In some economies, you have six months. In some economies, you have one year, right? This speaks to the value that states put in, in, in gender develop education, in, in, in development of the child, and the responsibility state to promote well-being you know, and nutrition of young people, you know, right from when they're born, right? So all of that, you know, is embedded in the policy space, how we currently exist in Africa and, and, and young people understanding that 
must come in with those kind of fresh ideas that seek to change, you know, the way the policy uh, space determines what happens practically, you know, on the ground, so that we can begin to have a society that is more humane, that is more responsive to the needs of women and young, young, young children, right? Because they they represent fifty percent of the population, you know, and it should be a shame not to um, capitalize and optimize on the benefits and the value that this section of society bring. That's just one context, and it has cultural and economic implications, yeah. right? So, so that's that's an example. Um, we have um, statistics that that speak to how poorly our education system is delivering. But we also have statistics that show that despite this, African youth are doing fairly well, despite the constraints of the environment, they're, they're actually doing very well, which, which is what the Oliver Wyman J Africa uh, survey speaks to. Yeah. You're back to the survey. I wanted to say one thing about the survey again. So yeah. the survey says that a majority of African youth think that mining and agriculture is what is really going to be the force of change in industry. But the youth in agri initiatives across Africa have not yielded any kind of big results. We are still seeing a lot of older generation, um, people in the establishment controlling agricultural systems. How do we continue to motivate young people to get into agriculture because you know when young people think about agriculture all they think about is people who are just going to farm and there's a social contrast around it that does not motivate them to want to do that how do we change that perception so that if they believe that agriculture is going to have a stake how do we motivate them to actually um, participate in it well that 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 role comes down to those currently in agri and those who are in the education space and also the youth themselves who must begin to look at the agric industry as a place where they can not just earn a living but make profit and add value to society. Agriculture is huge. Agriculture is uh, perhaps the most um, definitive sector and is actually also very foundational to, to a lot of industries, um, pharmaceuticals, to manufacturing, uh, food, drinks, export market, uh, nutrition, well-being. It's, 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 it's just huge, the, the value chain and what it does, you know, for society. So young people need to, you know, get, get, get to understand that it's, it's a cool industry to be in. Uh, the opportunities are huge uh, from the farm and even from research you know, researching seedlings and inputs to the farm, to the table, right, to the dining table. Young people need to understand uh, that they can have a good life, they can live a good life, and they can uh, do good and be seen as respected members of society if, if they go into agriculture. Again, you talk about this population, and um, the population will have to be fed, you know. Exactly. And a lot of the the opportunity in Africa is untapped in agriculture by virtue of the arable land that uh, is still untapped, right, across the countries. Now, there are institutions in Africa who 
which continue to promote you know investments in agriculture uh, and these programs and projects will uh, continue to attract not only young people but all sorts of uh, investors from across Africa and beyond to invest in that space and, and to expand the opportunity space in agriculture for young people. But more importantly, young people must also look towards agriculture, you know, and do the needful, uh, do the homework, do the research, and, and determine where they want to play, you know, and make um, a life in a lifetime opportunity of this. I would like us to have a conversation on leadership. Um... I mean, as young people, we are always um, trying to get into these leadership spaces because we think that the incumbents of the older generation have failed and all of that. In the first place, what is the problem of leadership in Africa? Why is it that it has always become a problem for us to sustainably have leaders who, I guess, empathize with the greater um, difficulties of the general population and are committed to solving those problems? I think the problem with leadership in Africa is, is the fact that we've always run um, a system, a political system, which is more about uh, personalities than principles. And because we don't run um, a principle-driven ecosystem politically, uh, we therefore end up not building institutions that stand the test of time. So one, one personality comes into political position uh, and there's a, a four-year, five-year election cycle. And then another personality comes after another election cycle. And every personality uh, changes, you know, the way and the structure and the process of governance um, without regard to what works best all the time for for everybody so you find uh people in the civil service just you know staying there just looking on uh and, and as i say uh politicians will come into executive roles as ministers as commissioners as governors as local government councillors some of them are professional politicians uh no matter how long they stay in government they will go one day but the civil service will, will be there and that's that that's the institution uh which needs to be built up into the engine of economic development, right? So, and and when 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 you begin to do that, you, you begin to respect the sanctity of institutions. Uh, we will, you know, begin to have a better quality, uh, where people can, for example, if there's a judicial process, if there's a conflict, who can decide decide that look, I trust the judicial system to sort this out. And when you have that kind of environment, people can say, okay, if I'm coming to invest even as a domestic investor, if there's a commercial dispute, I trust the courts, you know, that if I take this matter to court, it will be expeditedly treated and resolved, right? When you don't have that trust in uh, public institutions, then it's going to be difficult to engender development. And that, that's what we've been saying. That's what Jay, uh, Junior Achievement, has always talked about, uh, the need for young people, even as they grow in their digital skills journey, Right, that you have to do your business uh, within the com confines of the law, what is legal, uh, and basically help in building institutions around you. So I think what is key in what you said is that we kind of need a set of national agenda. That's not new. 
you know, as far back as 1957, when Ghana got his independence, Kwame Nkrumah, the first black person to have gained independence in a black country across the world, he, even in his Nkrumahism, had an idea of coming together, bringing the nation states of Africa together and have a set of agenda. So even Nkrumah had a bigger African agenda. And we as citizens think we need some form of national agenda. That is what we keep on saying. What is the hindrance to us having a national agenda? Is it the polarity of um, the politics that has already been established? And is it that, how do we go beyond it? Because it seems to me clearly that there is a consensus that there is a need for a national agenda that would be devoid of political influence and is seeking to rebuild the nation and the economy. So you talked about the founding fathers of uh, the Pan-African dream, right? Talk about Kwame Nkrumah, right? And, and the vision they had for Africa. That has not changed. The current business and political leadership, right, in Africa need to lay the building blocks of the continent's future economies, right? That's the role. Um, the Nkrumah era is gone. This is the era of the, you know, the 21st century era. This is the era of 5G. This is the era of artificial intelligence. This is the era of data-driven uh, economies. Uh, so we have to pivot to the modern agenda. So beyond having a national agenda, every society must also devolve its own modern agenda for growth and development. Right, in line with its key growth objectives, national development objectives. And young people um, must be part of this uh, discourse and development journey. Uh, it's incumbent on the leadership for young people and the youth to be mainstreamed in, into this. Uh, and mainstreaming is not going to happen, you know, by, by uh, some magic wand. It's going to be done proactively by the youth, you know, who come forward with ideas, you know, and pitch those ideas and advocate for those ideas. And by the osmotic uh, pressure over time, this ideas will, you know, become uh, part of the agenda that we all buy into. You know, if you look at the Africa that we talk about, 2050, 2030, 2040, the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years, uh, you will have a predominantly youthful continent where the median age might be 40, right, or 45, so to say. Uh, that's the that's mm -hmm. the future we need to begin to prepare for because that future is not far off. It's very near. It's just equidistance, you know, to the past where we had the Kwame Nkrumahs of, of Africa telling us that, oh, by 2020 or by 2000, year 2000, Africa should have this, Africa should be here. So we have the next 10, 15, 20 years as young people in Africa to shape the direction and the fortunes of the continent. One of the things that you just said is that Pan-Africanism must be redefined to meet the modern times. I, young people today do not know a lot about Pan-Africanism. Do you think Pan-Africanism is relevant in 2020? Pan-Africanism is more than any uh, other period is relevant. Young people must read the history, you know, of Africa. They must hear the history of society, of their countries. Uh, if you don't know where you're coming from, 
uh, you'll find it difficult, you know, to define the path and, you know, to your future. It's, it's like, imagine if, I mean, look at the typical Chinese, look at the typical Japanese, look at the typical Korean or typical Malaysian young, uh, young person. They understand their history. They understand the national ethos, you know, that defines a society. As Africans, youth, we need to understand our history. We need to understand because that's, there really is nothing new, really, if you look at it. Because in, in, in the history of Africa lies the solution to the future, the things we're talking about. Uh, we talk about the African Union today. We talk about the African Development Bank. We talk about the uh, African Continental Free Trade Agreement. You know, uh, these were all ideas enshrined, you know, in the covenants and agreements of Africa, African leaders, you know, 40, 50 years ago. So we are, we are on a journey, we're on a trajectory uh, of an unfinished journey. Yeah. Which we need to complete. But in our schools, when we talk about African history, especially if I remember correctly, history of Africa starts from a place, almost starts from a place of colonialism, and then descends into a place of independence. How do we redefine our history to really tell the story of the Africa before colonialist um, um, entanglements and truly? develop an African pride for young people? Because it's very crucial that if young people are going to be anything that is going to inspire the continent, they have to take pride in where they come from. And that will come from them understanding the history of the greatest of the continent, but of course, of the the, 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 the force of the continent as well. But our history cannot be restricted to, say, colonialist histories. That's not where the African continent began. Most of Africa, most of South Africa has had at least 40, 50 years post-independence, right? So whether uh, the nation was colonized by Germany or by Spain or by Portugal or by France or by the United Kingdom, uh, we've all had close to four to five decades. Uh, in some countries, 60 years, six decades of independence, right? And I think that uh, era of consistently looking back and blaming the past for the ills of the present, uh, that era is over. Uh, whatever the legacies of uh, the colonial era are, let's overcome those negative legacies and let's build on what we have. Um, Africa is perhaps the only continent that keeps uh, going back to that throwback. Asia uh, consistently is moving forward. Uh, the the Indo-Asian Indo uh, region on three, four days ago just signed a comprehensive regional economic uh, partnership agreement, which uh, is being touted to be the largest economic block in the world, right? So they're accelerating progress because they understand the impact that COVID-19 uh, has made, uh, has had on their various economies from Vietnam to Myanmar, to South Korea, to Australia, to China, they all understand uh, the impact of COVID-19 and how uh, they need to escape austerity uh, measures. They need to escape um, all the negative economic impacts and basically just do much better economically. So we have to do that also similarly. Uh, I know that uh, the African Continental Free Trade Agreement uh, will come into 
effect effectively uh, in January 2021. Hopefully, that will open up uh, and urge more uh, countries to open up their borders and begin to talk about bilateral and multilateral trade, right? Uh, we need to begin to do things proactively to build, for, for example, we need railway lines across our, our, our countries, right? Uh, just as we need railway lines within our countries, right? So that's for me, it, it, that's the response. Uh, we have everything we need within the continent. Uh, domestic investment needs to be governized and that will be followed by uh, foreign investments, whether it's portfolio investment or direct investment become once we begin to uh, show faith in our future. Okay, so I would like to make the rest of the conversation a little more personal. So I would like to ask you about growing up. How was growing up, um, I think in Nigeria was, what was the scenery at that time? I think that you, I am guessing you grew up within some of the most difficult times um, where Nigeria was plagued with war and uncertainty. How was that growing up experience like for you? Growing up was um, interesting. I, I, I came from a middle-class background, I, I think I would say. I grew up uh, initially in, in the city of Ibadan, which was uh, then the largest city in West Africa and possibly in Africa. Uh, I think it's been eclipsed by Cairo and Lagos now. Uh, and then I moved to Lagos when I was uh, eight or nine. So the first early years of my life with my grandparents in, in that city called Ibadan, uh, which used to be the capital of uh, Western region in Nigeria in the 60s. But I was born after the war. I was born after the war, not before the war. So uh, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Uh, by the 90s, I was uh, in tertiary institutions. And um, it was the era of uh, one civilian government coming, being followed by a military government, and we had several coup d'etat then, and that's also similar to many stories in Africa. Uh, military governments, austerity, or austere times, as it were. And um, it was an interesting, it was, it was tough. We, we thought the economy was bad then, we thought we were developing, but if you look at the uh, lifestyle, quality of life issues and standards then and now, I'm not sure if we have uh, progressed significantly. You know, what has happened is there has been an expansion, an explosion of population, and uh, we haven't been, uh, we haven't exploded the opportunity space. We haven't also expanded the infrastructure and the services for this huge market or this huge population. If you look at Africa now, I mean, I'm pivoting to something else now. Four countries, right, in Africa have at least 50% of their populations uh, where youth under the age of 15. That's Niger next door, Uganda, Angola, and Mali. So Nigeria has the largest population. Um, and then, of course, Ethiopia in Africa, and then South Africa, and then, of course, Cairo, before you come to the likes of Kenya and Ghana in terms of population size. So 
my 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 growing up years was defined by that geographical knowledge of Africa. Um, it was the era also of apartheid, South Africa, and I went to school with many um, young pupils or young colleagues from South Africa, from Namibia, who were sponsored by the Nigerian government to 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 come to on scholarship who, who came here to school. And I still have some of them as friends uh, up to today. So it was a very interesting time. It was not uh, it was not as liberal economically as now. Uh, as I said, it was when government had control of almost every sector of the economy. Uh, government was in control of telecom. Government was in control of the financial services sector. Government was in control of the power and energy sector. Uh, and even trade was largely uh, public sector driven. But that's changed now. The economy has expanded, but the opportunity space uh, has not uh, expanded in tandem with the, with the growth in, in numbers of people. So that's, that's, that's um, in, a, in a nutshell, that's my growing up years. Um, I grew up in Lagos, mostly, and Ibada. Uh, I had the privilege of, um, by the time I was 25, 26, I'd been to almost every part of Nigeria. Uh, I also had the fortune of being thrown into the deep end at a very young age as a young reporter. Um, so I had to swim, and that exposed me to the dynamics of the economy at various levels. Yeah, so I would like to hone in on that. How did you get into journalism at that young age, and what inspired you to get into the field? So journalism was a vocation like a hobby like a hobby rather became a vocation for me but it was initially a hobby so it was a hobby that became a vocation that's where i like to put it i studied computer science uh but I, I'm, I'm sure i wasn't very good at computing and it, to that at that time it sounded a bit more boring a bit boring to me and i guess i was more of a people person um i i, I looked at i compared you know writing and meeting people uh, versus sitting down and writing code in front of a green cathode ray tube screen, you know. Um, initially, I worked on mainframes. I, I used to work on mainframe computers. And then I also dabbled into sales of uh, software and hardware parts in Lagos. But I was always writing on the side. And one thing led to the other. Um, I wrote. I entered uh, an essay titled Love to Loathe Lagos in, I think, 1995 and for the CNN African Journalist of the Year contest. And then I came second in Africa. And uh, so, so, so that was a turning point for me. And I was still a young reporter working as a, we used to work on uh, Apple Macs then. Uh, designing, designing uh, newspaper pages. So I was, I was doing that. You know, I mean, the only reason why I even moved to a newspaper in the first place was because of my interest in media, anyway. But I was in computer section, so the IT section wasn't what I, I thought. I thought it was about mainframes and processing uh, machines and things, processors and things like that. But it wasn't the computer department in the newspaper house then was mainly about uh, 
desktop publishing systems, which I learned how to work on them. But I, I still moved, so I gravitated towards the newsroom gradually and um, started writing and, and just learning uh, how to write. So I never really studied journalism or MassCom or English or any of those related courses that you'll expect. But of course, over the years, I've done a lot of professional courses um, in journalism, in MassCom, and in public relations, and also media and development. And that's shaped my career. So 1995 was, was a turning point for me. After that CNN award, I then began to take myself seriously as a reporter. What did you fear most as a young growing African at that time? What did you fear most? What did I fear most? Yeah. That's interesting. I'm not sure if I feared anything. Uh, the fears were not in my, in my no, mind. I'm, what, I'm what asking that question I, because of the unsurety of being a young, growing African. Um, unsurety about jobs, about your future. I mean, you are just, you are trying to segue from doing wanting and computing into the other were you not afraid of the possibility of you not succeeding and all of that no i was i was never afraid of not succeeding in fact the fear of failure uh the fact that i didn't have a an academic background in mass com as it were kept me on my toes but i was never afraid i knew i could compete and i competed with people who um, perhaps had the first grounding in journalism and mass comm, but I wasn't afraid. I was never. I was never afraid. I knew I was going to succeed. And you know, success is also not just a destination. It's actually a way of traveling. It's a way of thinking. There's this saying that you have to do what you like, and then you also sometimes you have to like what you do. Whichever one happens first, you have a job. You have a role to do. You need to get the job done. And you need to also find fulfillment in it. Okay. Um, so you won the second place for the BBC Journalist of the Year Award in Africa. CNN, sorry. CNN. Um, after you've won that prize, what was the next thing? What was the evolution in your career? Well, it opened me up to the opportunity space and and, and in journalism, right, and the media. And like I said, that, that was the turning point for me. And I thereafter began to take myself more seriously. And then thereafter, I think a year after that, I switched jobs to a different newspaper. Uh, I stayed there for about two years. Then I moved to a magazine, an international magazine based in England called it as the West Africa Economics and Business Correspondent. So I never, uh, I never looked back after that. It was clear to me that was my calling. Uh, whatever I was going to do uh, for the rest of my life, I was going to be anchored on my media, journalism, writing skills, and passion. During that time and now, what do you think has been the difference in the in the media landscape? Has there been a dramatic shift in the media landscape? Maybe we can talk about 
um, the coming of age of digital technology, amongst other things. What, what do you think has been one of the most crucial differences? Now there's social media. We didn't have social media then. Now there's a lot more. What you have now is uh, what has been called citizen journalism, right? Everybody now can write or everybody thinks that they can write and everybody can get their news out. So from having the media entities having control of the information flow, now information flow is more, more like a matrix. Before you needed to wait for the newspaper or for the radio or for the TV program or news report to know what was going on. You need to wait for tomorrow's newspaper to know what happened today or maybe two days ago or three days ago. But now all of, all of, it's almost instant, instantaneous now. You know, real time. This is, this is a real time media era. If, if, if you look at what, look at your media consumption habits, even you as a person, where do you get most of your news from? Is it newspapers? Is it TV? Is it radio? Mostly, I get it from, my, yeah, my phone, my phone, social media. So I see a story on social media, and I go. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's a multiplicity of um, media channels and platforms now that you can always always use to check based on your interest and your habits and what you gravitate towards mentally and psychologically. So that's that's the difference. It's a it's a bigger market. It's a much much open space you can say it's more liberal and more democratic but there's also increased irresponsibility um, and then there's also more fake news more fake reports and then of course there's a lot of camouflaging online which which means for everything you see online and you consume you need to cross-check the facts to see if it's authentic and if it's real yeah i was actually getting to that um, what do you think is a solution to the multiplicity of platforms that are creating um, fake news, as we call it, in our culture now? And if you can give, say, some steps to the average person to fact check how credible a news source is, what would that be? You just need to be more cautious, more careful. Uh, and always think before you act, before you spread or transfer any news or info to, to the next person. Uh, look at the source, look at you know the, who is sending it or which institution is sending it. Um, you can also look at agenda, what's the agenda of, the, of this institution or this person. Um, everybody has an agenda, even when you don't think you have an agenda. Because even your interests, your likes, you know, your lifestyle can be an agenda for somebody else. So if you're innocently posting photographs of yourself on Instagram, you know, you like posting stuff on yourself and you just like it. For somebody else, they might look at you and say, okay, I like this guy's style. He's bold. I like his dress sense. You know, things like that. And uh, it creates an image. You create an image of yourself. There's a perception that you create, deliberately or not, 
and somebody else is, you know, consuming that perception. So you ask yourself, what's the rationale for my behavior, my online behavior? Um, will what I do today and put online, will it, can I, can I, you know, look, look at you in the face five years time and say, and be proud and say, yes, that's what I did. That's what I said. That's what I posted. You know, so always ask yourself, you know, those questions. Always self-check, cross-check. So that's my counsel to to online media behavior and consumption. Um, last question I'd like to ask you is that if you were to go back in time to say your younger self when you were in your early twenties, what advice would you give to yourself then? Uh, interesting. You know what they say that if I knew what I knew 10 years ago now, if I knew what I knew now 10 years ago, I'll be a different person. Um, if I had to go back to that time, I probably, I will have listened more and spoken less. I think the older I get, the more I realize how important it is to listen. And, and, and you know, almost uh, speak for half the time or less than half the time that you listen. It's so important. It's so so critical that you seek information and knowledge from people when they speak, you know, you know and and hear them out, and even invoke conversations, you know, start a conversation with a stranger or anybody you know, with the intention of actively listening, not, you know, listening to that person with the intention of responding. You know, so most of the time when we engage in conversations, we tend to have our res responses in our heads. We know what we want to say, even before the other person finishes, you know, speaking. But practice listening actively. If if I could go back to my 20s, I would do a better job of that. Okay. Thank you very much, Charles, for coming to the Change Africa podcast. It was a very nice um, time with you. Thank you for having me, and um, I'm sure this this will be a, a good thing for Africans of all ages to listen to, and I hope you go on to do more podcasts of this nature. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. We hope to see you next week. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, send us a message via social media on Facebook, Twitter, instagram and linkedin you can also become one of our amazing patrons by subscribing to our patreon account to support the podcast